0: This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So, join me on the 2023 Mark Stein cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun sea and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up. And on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com.
1: The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now.
0: Welcome along. After uh, three years of hell, as you just heard, we are back on the ocean waves, or at any rate, the Adriatic Sea waves. And uh, that was uh, the announcement of the Markstein cruise, which will be coming up in uh, 2023 after an unwanted hiatus. So we hope you'll want to come along and cruise with us, in which we do the sort of Clubland Q&A thing pretty much uh, every day at one session or another. It is November 4th, 2022, 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time. That is 4 p.m. in the Canadian Maritimes, half past four in Newfoundland. And beyond the Americas, it is 7 p.m. on the Greenwich Meridian in London, 8 p.m. in Paris, 9 p.m. in Kiev. Oh, boy, it's 10 p.m. in Moscow. Because Kyiv and Moscow are now back in separate time zones. Uh, Half past ten in Tehran for all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone. 11.45 in Kathmandu for all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone. 3 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. 6 a.m. in Melbourne and Sydney. 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning in Auckland and an even more convivial hour for the kippers and kedgery in the Pacific beyond. One hundred years ago today, November 4th, 1922, the Egyptologist Howard Carter arrived for what he expected to be another fruitless day's work at his excavation site in the Valley of the Kings, to find that his young water boy had stumbled on a stone that proved to be the first step in a flight of steps. Mr. Carter ordered them dug out until the top of a doorway appeared. And when he saw the markings on it, he went off to cable his patron, the Earl of Carnarvon. We'll have more on the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb on Saturday's Hundred Years Ago show. Oh, and by the way, we'll be doing a live Hundred Years Ago show on the aforementioned... Mark Stein Cruz, so if you're hemming and a hoeing over, you know, Mr. Snurdly Michelle Backman, Tal Backman, Ava a broke, I hope the promise of a live 100 years ago show is uh, going to seal the deal for you. Our first question, I said it was 3 a.m. in Honkers, and our first question comes from just a guy in Hong Kong. He says, hi, Mark, I'm rarely able to listen uh, but I'm a longtime fan of your work. At times, I feel you're the only voice speaking uncomfortable truths. No one in politics seems willing to confront the real issues facing the general population because of the initial blowback from the elite class. And as you put it once, it seems like real work. I wanted to get your thoughts on McConnell, as I don't think he's earned the right to be majority leader. If the R's win... I'm most concerned about what he doesn't allow to be brought to a vote, especially with a Trump or DeSantis White House. How can he be blocked? Bonus questions if you have the time. (laughs) You said once that... (laughs) This is a question I don't get very often. You said once that Quebec got rid of its version of a Senate. Uh, How did that happen? Could it happen now? And two, if the country, USA, is really as fractured as it looks from... Over here in Honkers, could it split up uh, into two or more republics, says just a guy in Hong Kong where it's three in the morning? Yeah, the Quebec upper house, mostly in the Westminster system, you have two uh, houses of parliament and they look pretty much the same all over the Commonwealth. The lower chamber is usually in green. And uh, the upper chamber is in royal red. Um, And uh, as things uh, go, and because they're all set up in imitation of Westminster, then you have places in the Commonwealth that aren't particularly keen on being perceived to be Britannic in their parliamentary aesthetic. And one such place, obviously, is the Francophone province of Quebec. The red chamber, the equivalent of the House of Lords or the equivalent of the Canadian Senate in Ottawa was called the uh, Legislative Council. If I remember, I think it just had 24 members who were appointed for life. But as Quebec politics radicalized in the 1960s, uh, they, they decided that this was an obstacle to them getting on with it. Um, and so they decided that uh, they were going to abolish it and they simply uh, voted to abolish it and renamed the lower house uh, the uh, Assemblée Nationale, the National Assembly uh, in, in mimicry of the French Parliament. Uh, you can do that. There's obviously you can't do that in America. Uh, and we can have arguments as to whether that is a good thing or not. But I couldn't honestly say that the Senate functions in any way, as the founders intended. Um, So I'd be, uh, and and you you bring up the McConnell point. Yeah, I mean, let's assume there is a red wave. The question then is, what do you get? What do you get? Well, you, you you get a Congress obstructing Biden until the election of a Republican president. Then what? Then you have what happened in 2016, where Trump won, McConnell won, Paul Ryan won, and two-thirds of those guys obstructed the other guy. And I'm not sure—you know, I, I'm all about the urgency. I'm all about the urgency. Everything is—everything that— Everything is screwed right now. Nothing works. Uh, and simply because of that fact, we we need far more urgency about what they're going to do when they're in office. Now, I haven't actually heard any plans for... They've got some sort of watered down version of the contract or, uh, for, of America or whatever. Contract to America, contract on America. No, that was what Clinton called it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which was a funny line. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the whole but the whole point is that they, they need to do things quickly. And I don't hear what they're planning to do, except that I think Lindsey Graham is planning uh, to start hearings into the uh, whatever it is, into the Durham investigation of the Mueller investigation of the Russia investigation or whatever it is. So investigations of investigations of investigations. I want some urgency. I want something done. I want the border closed. I want America to have a border because I think it's important in the Western world that this stupid idea that the Americans actually have succeeded in imposing on almost every Western nation just through saying it loudly enough, that what decent Western societies do is just have their borders open uh, so that criminal gangs can walk in, so that terrorists can walk in, so that fentanyl exporters don't have to bother filling in all the paperwork when they're exporting fentanyl to kill America's youth. I'd like something done about that. McConnell just isn't a serious guy. Like whenever you just whenever you see him, he's like a lot of people, you know, Trump is Trump is Right he's got a well connected chinese wife and that's great i'm very happy for him i'm sure it works out very favourably for him but most uh, people who aren't in politics don't have that to cushion what's to come so i would like i would like some evidence of seriousness and uh, that would involve an entirely different uh, Senate leader, and it's not the nature of the Senate for those things to happen. Alyssa Angel says, uh, Oprah, what was the, uh, oh, if the, if the country could split into two or more republics. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? There's certain kinds of places, there's certain kinds of secession you can have. Basically, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, well, for we start, the Soviet Union split up into a whole bunch of different countries. Then Yugoslavia split up into a whole bunch of different countries. Then uh, Czechoslovakia split up into two different countries. Then uh, we have things like in East Timor living, leaving East Indonesia. There is uh, South Sudan breaking away from Sudan. There are all kinds of new countries on the map that weren't there 30 years ago. Uh, I'm not sure. And they may well be, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is threatening to uh, do another referendum and for Scotland to leave the United Kingdom. People keep looking at demographic trends in Northern Ireland and think that Northern Ireland might still be leaving the United Kingdom. And then it wouldn't be a United Kingdom because a, a United Kingdom has to be between at least two kingdoms, and uh, England, Scotland, Ireland are all kingdoms, but Wales, I don't know offence to any Welshman listening, is only a principality. So a union of England and Wales wouldn't be a United Kingdom at all. So all these places, these are all in play. There's a lot of things that have happened in 30 years, but leaving aside the fact uh, that... um, Most constitutional scholars in America assume that there is no right to secede, even if you want to. It's not clear to me that if you wanted to secede, say, to set up a right wing small government republic in mimicry of the founder's original vision, uh, whether that is something they would actually permit. You know, it's interesting the way Joe Biden threatens violence a lot. You know, when he said, uh, uh, you know, the guy who lost the goatherds with fertilizer. Nevertheless, when people are talking about the Second Amendment, he says, well, we've got nukes and you haven't. So he's like all but threatening to nuke you. I don't know what that means, but I do think it suggests that uh, his prestige and the prestige of the left uh, depends on. in a certain sense, on the United States being the size it is now, and he's not going to let you go easily. Well, (laughs) what a question to start with. Alyssa Angel says Oprah Winfrey endorsed John Fetterman in the Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race. Fetterman may be more brain dead than Biden. And Oprah has a professional relationship with Dr. Oz. She's produced and promoted Oz for decades. Why weigh in at all? Oprah does not live in Pennsylvania because it was Dr. Oz who nullified that friendship by deciding to run as a Republican. They won't let you do it. They won't let you do it in show business. Uh, They did Uh, 40, 50 years ago, you could have Democrats and you could have Republicans. And people, I mean, I always remember Tony Benn. Tony Benn is a great, huge British left winger. But as he always said, he he loved uh, Bob Hope and he didn't care that Bob Hope was a right wing Republican. He just thought he was funny. And there's none of that anymore. Uh, You can't, so you can't cross over to the other side and expect to keep Oprah's friend. She's not, as they see it, she's not the one who killed the friendship he did by running as a Republican. These are, these are why these people are all boring. I mean, I, I, uh, Dan Wooden the other night, when I handed over to him on whatever night it was, and he was doing something on Trevor Noah, because Trevor Noah is South African. And before Trevor Noah became uh, a huge failure on American TV, uh, he he used to be on British TV. I think I mentioned before, I remember him uh, seeing him at the London Palladium and he was making jokes about how stupid Americans are, you know, because he'd, he'd, he'd flown from South Africa and landed at Dulles or LAX or whatever it was at a time of, uh, I think it was an Ebola outbreak. And he was asked whether he was, uh, the, the guy looked at his passport and said, oh, yeah, so you're from Africa. Have you got Ebola? And he said, no, uh, I'm from South Africa and the Ebola is all in the West Africa. <laughs> Everybody in the Palladium crack it up with laughter. Oh, boy, these stupid Americans. Then he gets a big job offer from America and suddenly he drops all the Americans are really stupid bits in his act, and it doesn't actually leave anything else in the act. So I switch on uh, to, I go to hand over to Dan Wharton, and he's doing something about um, Trevor Noah doing this uh, monologue about all the people being racist about Rishi Sunak. And uh, in fact, nobody's being racist about Rishi Sunak where we all those of us who loathe him, loathe him because he's a big sinister globalist. We don't even need to reach, as the judges say, we don't even need to reach his skin color because we revile him for being a mega rich globalist who's made his money in ways nobody can quite explain. So Trevor Noah did this totally fake-o uh, monologue based on the citizens of the United Kingdom being racist about Rishi Sunak, which they totally haven't. And then he starts going on about why why is uh, King Charles still king of Jamaica? Well, he's king of Jamaica. Because the people of Jamaica, the the people of Jamaica, who are sovereign of Jamaica and can get rid of him as king of Jamaica as easily as those Quebecers got rid of Quebec's upper chamber in parliament, uh, have have decided they're not yet ready to get rid of the king as king of Jamaica. So it's like Trevor Noah is like completely unfunny, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't. That's what that's what showbiz is now. A man comes out on stage on all these awful, unwatchable, crappy American telly shows. A man comes out on stage and invites you to applaud him for telling you what correct attitudes you are meant to have. So in applauding Trevor Noah uh, for being totally unfunny, you're also applauding yourself for holding the correct attitudes. It's so dismal, so pathetic. Um and 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 Elissa wants to know why uh, why did Oprah even need to weigh in at all? She doesn't live in Pennsylvania. Well, you know why does Barbara Streisand need uh, to contribute to Bernie Sanders in Vermont? That's just the nature of the beast. But it is also to teach somebody like Dr. Oz a lesson that when you decide to enter politics on the wrong side, you're not just going up against Fred Schlubb or whoever your candidate is meant to be. You're actually exiting the club you belong to. And obviously, there's a very clear example of that. Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump, the man who used to get Bill and Hillary Clinton to attend his weddings. uh, he, he, by doing what he did, he left the club. By doing what he did, Dr. Oz left the club. Now, you say Fetterman may be more brain-dent than Biden, Elissa. I think that's actually the point. I think that's actually the... They're teaching us to put up... You know, who is going to be... A, a, being a senator is a ridiculous position, you know, and uh in that sense I can I mean the, the the Quebec upper house was far less insane than this lot and uh, and uh, w- if I ever start to talk about the United States Senate, I would be uh well uh disposed towards anybody doing what those Quebec guys did to the Quebec Senate but the but 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 the the point is, At the minimum, if you're a senator, you're running a staff of, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 people, whatever it's up to by now. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't be like that. But that's what it is. Now, I've known senators. I testified at a hearing, uh, whatever it was, three or four years ago. And I was up against Ed Markey. He was sitting up there. And that guy is just fed his lines, right? He's fed his lines by the—if you notice when you're in a hearing, the senators are sitting there, and then behind them, on a row behind them, there's all these staffers. That's because the senators—it It's. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Markey, who's particularly stupid, or Dianne Feinstein, who's just got a bit, little bit enfeebled— uh, but they're completely useless without the guys passing them the bits of paper and whispering in their ear, as with Marky, and telling them what to say. They can't do We don't do that. When you testify against them, so you're going up against them, you just come in on your own and you sit there at the table. You don't have people whispering and passing you bits of paper and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, so the standards for these people are not very high. But even granted that and we and you've seen things, you know. I don't want to g- rehearse the health histories of certain decrepit senators, but we've seen things that suggest that if it is a job, they're no longer comp- capable to doing it. Of doing it now, Federman obviously is not capable. He's not co- capable of running an organisation of seventy staffers. Ellis uh, is quite right. Uh, he's more brain dead than Biden. But it's the point is to make you go along with the lie. You watch any, you know, you listen to certain talk radio shows and they'll be going on about Biden being brain dead. But you watch the respectable news bulletins, uh, ABC, CBS, NBC. You watch the news that most people, they treat Biden as if he's a regular functioning guy. And that's what they're going to do with this guy, because the point is to make you swallow the lie, to make you live with the lie. Uh, If this guy Fetterman wins, none of us will know who is making the decisions on behalf of Pennsylvania in the United States Senate, just as none of us know who is actually the chief executive of the United States right now. Pete Procopio writes, hello, Mark and fellow club members. My question is, how did House Majority Whip... James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina, figure out the ultra-maga Republicans' dastardly covert plan of radicalizing a middle-aged Canadian nudist and have him bludgeon. Paul Pelosi, thus suppressing the Democrat base and successfully subverting American democracy so quickly. Clyburn clearly fixes his superior historical knowledge with statements like, quote, This country is on track to repeat what happened in Germany when it was the greatest democracy going, when it elected a chancellor that then co-opted the media. <laughs> it's a good thing we're all so stupid. Because honestly, there's more to what happened to Germany after the fall of the Kaiser. Uh, than the way he's preceded He clearly doesn't listen to the 100 Years Ago show. Uh, I didn't realize he possessed such finely honed and rational deductive skills. The man is a modern-day Herodotus and Sherlock Holmes ruled into one. How can the dark forces of Ultramaga ever hope to subvert American democracy when wizards of smart like Clyburn are out there blowing the whistle? While some may feel that his vote against awarding Ohio's electoral votes to Bush in 2005 makes him a dirty film election denier. Clyburn deftly explains, not so. It's totally different. We didn't call anybody about a change in the votes. We just voted on a process. To protest a process is what we did. Nobody stormed the Capitol. Nobody disrupted the count. We only voted to protest a process, which is a legitimate thing in this country. Got that, dummies? In the interest of transparency, I added the got that dummies part. Please excuse the sarcasm. Just trying to fun it up a bit on Friday. This stolt is the House majority whip doomed. You know, the vast right-wing conspiracy, the mega-maga, ultra-maga, super-maga, uh, whatever it's called now, it's a bit like frequent flyer programs with United, isn't it? It's got up, up upgraded from mega-maga to ultra-maga. Anyway... They're so cunning, they know that the last person you would suspect would be a middle-aged Canadian nudist. (laughs) You know, you know, MAGA, Trump, Trump has got a huge camp up in northern British Columbia where he's training thousands of middle-aged Canadian nudists, just for this, they're battle-hardened. Have you tried being a nudist in Canada? It's bloody tough. And uh, this guy has uh, this. This guy is just the first of many who are going to come sweeping down. You know, but you know something else. How deep does the conspiracy go? Because what I find so odd here is I think Paul Pelosi might actually be a Trump agent too. Because if you think about it, we all know that the Democrat Party, the left in general, is the voice of youth. So is it likely you would have a party in which so many senior figures... Are these decrepit old geezers, whether you're talking about Paul Pelosi or Joe Biden or Pat Leahy or Dianne Feinstein? Obviously not. The, the Democrats are the voice of youth. They're the future. We all know that old white people will soon be dead and they're the horrible past it right wing uh, white supremacist type. So the likelihood is, don't you think, do, Do you honestly think that all these old white geezers, Paul Pelosi, Joe Biden, Pat Leahy, Diane Fine, that they're genuine Democrats? Of course not. They're plants in deep, deep cover. In deep, deep cover. You're right to be suspicious, Pete. You know, I can hardly bear to talk about this story. Because, as I said to Snerdly, it just makes no sense. Nancy Pelosi doesn't dare travel among the American people. So she has to be flown home every weekend on a government plane Uh, because she can't be seen among the people. Right? so she goes home on a secure government plane from a sec- takes off from a secure facility lands at a secure facility and then she uh, returns to a house where any old middle-aged canadian nudist can just stroll into it and start a hammer in you uh, and that doesn't that story doesn't make any no- any sense i'm not even going with all the conspiracies that he's a rent boy or, or whatever because I don't think you need to go there. We all know that everything's crap. If you've ever been to a—I know a little bit, for one reason or another, about a presidential event in uh, New Hampshire. The security for that was rubbish, complete rubbish. Anybody could have got in through the open back door if they'd wanted to take out the president of the United States. Um, I don't think a lot of this stuff is a racket. It's not. It's not any good. And the bigger it gets, the more of a racket it becomes. If you've got a security detail of two people, chances are uh, they'll be willing to take a bullet for you. If if you've if you've got a hundred and two people, then it's just a scam. They're just bulking up their expenses and all the rest of it. Then we have the fact that because he's important, they send. Uh, they 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 send the police round in a hurry. The police get there. Somebody, we don't know who, opens the door because Paul Pelosi and the Canadian nudist are wrestling with a hammer. And so the coppers apparently say, drop the hammer. So the law-abiding guy, that's Mr. Pelosi, drops the hammer, at which point the non-law-abiding guy takes it and bashes his head in. You know, that wasn't really a smart, call dropped the hammer was it so 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 the whole how did he get his skull uh, caved in in front I mean none of this makes any sense and it's like a lot of things it's like this police report that came up on the Mark Stein show from the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester uh, which was just one cavalcade of errors after another uh, and that is actually what whatever is the truth of this, we're never going to know. Whatever is the truth of it, we're just never going to know. Tim Boggs, Midwestern Tim says, when the branch Covidians ask you for amnesty, how will you reply? I don't want amnesty. I mentioned this, this piece in the Atlantic Monthly. everybody's talking about. I think Laura Rosen-Cohen was talking about it yesterday, too. Uh, where she's, oh, why don't we just like all kiss and make up and call it a day? As if, because there's fault on both sides. Actually, there isn't. There isn't. Diane Calabresi, <laughs> who is uh, the most pessimistic of Stein Club commenters, but I think she had a thing just as a sort of <laughs> a passing thought today that she was right about all this stuff in March of uh, 2020. Um, and uh, and the experts weren't, and so the thing about the Atlantic is that these were just good faith errors. We didn't know anything. Well, actually, we did know something. We knew Fauci knew, and the other public health officials knew just what had been going on in Wuhan. That it was American gain of function research with American tax dollars going on there. So they knew what was going on in wuhan there were too many so there have been a lot of lies and there have been a lot of bad public policy in support of the lies and then there's just been a lot of follow the money type stuff that that because there was more money in it for people by not going with therapeutics but by going with a vaccination program i mean this is that this is the thing you know uh American, America is corrupt. I always say that's the big difference. America is corrupt in a way that whatever you feel about Denmark or Finland, then they're, they're not corrupt. So when you have somebody is somebody at Pfizer, right, is on the phone to you and he's telling you, look, we've got to come up with this vaccine. And uh, this vaccine Uh, Could be taken by everybody on the planet. That's 8 billion customers. 8 billion customers. Do you see where I'm going with this? As opposed to therapeutics, which would only be taken by people who got it bad. There's lots of people who get the COVID, don't even know they've got the COVID. I'm pretty certain that I have had the COVID. In the last few years, because simply because, like, I was penned, got off a plane at Boston and was penned up by the arses of Homeland Security in the actual jetway, we're all there, stuck together, nose to nose, because at the front of the line, uh, the uh, the arses of Homeland Security are interviewing everyone individually and telling them to social distance. Meanwhile, we've all caught the COVID because we've been penned up in a, an airless jetway nose to nose. I'm pretty sure I've caught the COVID in the last three years, haven't uh, had any symptoms, haven't noticed it, haven't needed to take anything. So if you had the therapeutics and people who, you know, got it and thought they needed to take the therapeutics would take the therapeutics, but it's not going to be on any scale like these vaccines. So I'm not interested in... Am- then again, we have, I think, what America is doing right now, for example, jabbing kids, jabbing six months old, six month olds. I think that's actually evil. We're making, we're giving our kids, when you jab these things into kids, a, they don't need to take it. And a significant number of them are going to die young or die middle-aged uh, rather than die old because uh, they've been weakened by this thing that no six month old should be having. Then we have the new bollocks, you know, the bivalent or whatever it's called, that Finland has already said ah no, sorry, we looked at this thing and it's crap, isn't it? we've looked at it objectively and have decided it's total crap. so're not going so I'm not in the mood to just forgive and forget. Uh, and do the amnesty like this Atlantic lady wants, I actually think there do need to be criminal prosecutions. I think a great crime. I I think there's a point at which a cover-up, which Fauci was doing from day one about the origins of the covid seamlessly morphed into an actual crime at the highest level of governments, And I don't think that's something you forgive and forget, because if you do, the buggers will do it to you next time. And this lady at the Atlantic, the Goldman Sachs professor of economics at Brown University, is going to be urging them to do it to you all again. Eric Dale is one more on this thing Uh, What are your thoughts on Emily Oster's essay in The Atlantic asking us for a pandemic? I think I've just given my thoughts on that. But actually, I said it. I think I said it on on TV uh, one night this week. I'm just not I'm not minded to go there. You know, right now, they're still it's too early because all these people, they're still jabbing the six month old's. They're still saying, well, we may need to go to Mars this winter. They're still coming up with new booster shots. So this combined flu shot Omicron shot. Okay, so if you're someone who usually gets the flu shot once a year or whatever, you go along to CVS or Walmart or whatever, are you entirely sure they won't be putting the bivalent thing in your flu shot this this time and, and giving you and giving you both of them? You know, So the fact is the COVID regime is still in place. It, the propaganda pom-pom girls, like this idiot who's cyber-stalking me in London, this BBC guy, Dr. Matthew Sweet, they're still there. So we're nowhere, even if you were minded to go for, oh, for, forgive and forget, uh, they're still doing all this. It's a way of silencing the actual truth about these last few years. You know, which I'm I'm proud to say I don't I never got to do anything interesting on Fox, which, as as I've said, is one reason why it just it bored me silly. And I didn't want to go. Didn't want to carry on, you know, just uh, going, uh, having to get dressed to go on Tucker to talk about Andrew Cuomo's dog and the new pregnant man emoji and all the trivial crap. But we have actually made a difference on the on, uh, on the UK show. We've managed to get some compensation payments to people who were injured and bereaved by the vaccine. And we've managed to play our part in ensuring there's a much uh, smaller take up of this new vaccine. You can't have a vaccine every three months. You uh, uh, Common sense just says that's not going to do your system any good, even if it weren't for the mountain of evidence. And because they're still trying to suppress the evidence, no, sorry, Emily Oster can screw off Because I ain't ready to forgive and forget just yet until we actually need, we actually need uh, Fauci Fired. We actually need Rachel Walensky. Fire. I mean, these people are ridiculous. Oh yes, I've had all my, uh, I've had all my boosts. Oh what a shame! I've come down with the COVID again, but don't worry, I'm taking Paxlovid. It's made by Pfizer, so you can rely on that. I'm, I've just had a dose of Paxlovid, and on Tuesday my COVID went away and I tested negative. But oh, uh, what's this? Oh, on Thursday the COVID came back. That's because it's rebound COVID. I mean, how much... The rest of us are just getting on with our lives. You know? The rest of us are just getting on with our lives. I'm not ready. This is... This is... E- Emily Oster's plea bargain, which I saw it described as somewhere or other on the internet, and that's a good way of putting it. Emily Oster's plea bargain. And if it is a plea bargain in the usual crappy American justice system, you would have to go a lot farther than she has for the plea to be accepted. So, no, I'm not uh, satisfied. I'm getting a bit worked up. Getting a bit worked up. Next thing you know, I'll be saying, I'll be yelling, don't wave that constitution at me. So, let, me t- let, let us take a couple of minutes for a musical interlude. As I said earlier, today's the centenary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb on this day in 1922. He wasn't such a great pharaoh. Uh, But he became a superstar in death, thanks to Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon. And I would say he reached the apogee of his celebrity in the 1970s with the blockbuster exhibition, The Treasures of Tutankhamun. They started pronouncing the name differently. Instead of saying Tutankhamun, it suddenly became Tutankhamun, a bit like, uh, what is it, Tutankhamun. Common in South London. Uh, the Treasures of Tutankhamun uh, opened at the British Museum in London in 1972, and it went on to tour the world, getting bigger and bigger, country by country, eventually reaching the United States. If you were a serious Egyptologist, however, the crass commercialization, this boffo exhibition, Loosed Upon the World, was very disturbing. <laughs> I'd like to talk seriously just for a moment. (laughs) One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamen, or King Tut. But I think it's a national disgrace, the way we have commercialized it, with trinkets and toys, T-shirts and posters. And about three months ago, I was up in the woods and I wrote a song. I tried to use the ancient modalities and melodies. I would like to do it for you right now. Maybe we can all learn something from this.
1: King Tut. King now Tut. when he was a young man, he never thought it would see king people stand in line to see the boy king. King Tut. How'd you get so funky? Tut. Did you do the monkey? I know they line up just to see I've taken all my money and bought me a museum. King Tut, buried with a donkey. Oh, Tut. He's my favorite honky. Born in Arizona, moving to Babylon. King Tut, Tut Tut, dancing by the Nile, disco Tut. crocodile. He gave his life for tourism. (laughs) Golden idols. He's an Egyptian. On a Grammy, buried in his jammies. Born in Arizona, marries a Californian. Born in Arizona, got a
0: condo made of stoner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't heard that. Since I was a teenager, but it's sold over a million copies for its composer, lyricist and performer Steve Martin. That was its very first outing on Saturday Night Live, May 22nd, 1978. Four decades later, it was included uh, for illustrative purposes of something or other in a course at Reed College, Oregon. And the students protested that it was cultural appropriation of the ancient Egyptians. And uh, they demanded its removal on the grounds in Terralia that the Tutankhamun-like gold face worn by the saxophone player was a racist allusion to blackface minstrelsy. We have reared monsters, moronic monsters, but monsters nonetheless, And it won't be long before, uh, like the guys who bust into the Charlie Hebdo offices that morning, it won't be long before these lunatics are also killing us over jokes. I certainly hope Steve Martin has better security than Salman Rushdie uh, did. Let's get back to your questions. Johnny Woodrow. Oh, Johnny has a question. Uh uh highly relevant to the state of our youth he says hi mark i'm a new member thanks to the cost of lockdown i've had to do the quarterly thing that's okay johnny we uh, we, we we treasure your, your presence among our ranks he says i'm in the club for the long haul and will sell organs to stay in every 3 months well if the organ market crashes uh, and uh, and you've got a couple. If you can give me a good deal, I'll, I'll buy a couple of your body parts if that's what it comes to. A nice young man has offered to rent my house if he can fill it with plants. He works at the Albanian car wash. I'll still be allowed to live in my house if I just refuse to answer the door and if he can wire some special lamps straight into the mains... In the road, he says there's lots of people who want to buy the plants, So I think this will help me buy my ticket on that next Stein cruise. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, I love the way everybody's talking about it. Oh, it's only a small percentage of Albanians who are actually working in criminal activities. Not all of them are running the drug and prostitution gangs. Uh, this week, I've had... I can't get over that. I, I always found it uh, slightly odd at the time that Liam Neeson... And I understand why Liam Neeson did it, because he is so bloody drippy in Love Actually... Uh, that you can understand why he just want a palate cleanser after that. So they offer him a script in which he has to gun down 17,000 Albanians. And then he does a sequel in which he guns down 83,000 Albanians. Uh, And what was interesting is that no one ever queried that. You know, Sweller Braverman uses the word invasion, And suddenly people, are you surprised that there's all this Albanophobia going around? now? No, funnily enough, when Liam Neeson was just gunning them down in their thousands a couple of years ago, there was no Albanophobia coming from that. Maybe Suella Braverman should just make Taken 4 and uh, do to the Albanians in that picture what Liam Neeson did to the first ones. Anyway, Johnny Woodrow continues, this week I've had several mid to late teenagers ask me how to get into serious journalism. They're young social conservatives who come home furious that their English curriculum is a briefing on neo-Marxist readings of lefty literature. They were fed on C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man for Breakfast when they were little. They want to know how to follow in the footsteps of Mark Stein, Naomi Wolf and Douglas Murray. I'm guessing the older paths into journalism are overgrown and lost to conservatives with the sellout of mainstream media to the children of Foucault. Do you have any advice for encouraging that, the next generation of young conservative thinkers and writers? Could the Mark Stein Club create a forum to nurture young writers as they head through university, for instance? Well, the big, the big problem is that you can't make a living. Uh, at, in that particular activity. Back when I was a newspaper columnist, it was a highly profitable field to be in, because particularly in London, but also in Toronto, which at that time was a serious competitive newspaper market, newspapers would want to poach you back and forth. And the way they could poach you from their rivals was to offer you more money. So uh so in London and Toronto, you could make a, an awful lot of money writing newspaper columns. You can't now. And people who are purely columnists, like I, I can't, I think I mentioned this uh, um, a few months ago, some, for some reason or other, a Maureen Dowd column came to my attention. And part, aside from what she said was just the usual Maureen Dowd thing. But I was stunned to realize she's still writing away in the New York Times, whatever it is, twice a week or whatever, um, even even though there's, you know, nobody pays any attention to that. You're just sort of writing it in, writing into the void. The thing about writing, and, and this is what I always say, Johnny, is it's, it's a lonely activity. It's not sociable. It's not convivial. And so you actually have to like doing it. And if you like doing it, you write anyway. There's people who keep diaries. There are people who, people who keep journals as people who write the occasional poem just for the satisfaction it affords them. So if you've got people uh, who enjoy writing, uh, then that's that's the first thing they need. I, I agree with you that we need some organized young talent. And it's not because, you know, I've had people say to me, Oh, you know, what's the point of expressing an opinion? Uh, You know, you need to get a hammer and break in to the Speaker of the House's home in San Francisco. That's the only way things are going to change. People are saying that now. And to an an extent, I uh, feel very sad about it, but I don't disagree that I think it's highly unlikely that the problems we face can be solved within the normal bounds of electoral politics. Because simply put, politics, particularly in the English-speaking world and particularly in the frozen system of the United States, seems to time and again just throw up the wrong people. That's I'm not making an anti-American point here, particularly if you look at the uh, average uh, Canadian Tory leadership candidate of the last 15 years if you look the uh, same thing in Australia same thing in New Zealand you know it's it's not great um, but if you want to be able to influence people through your writing then I don't honestly think that going and getting a, a job with uh, The Guardian or The Independent or the Toronto Star or whatever is the way to do it. I think we're way beyond that now. And I'm, uh, one of the things we're celebrating this month is 20 years of Stein online. And I was late in a certain sense. I'm still here and a lot of the people who made me want to get on the Internet are no longer here. Um, you know, a few of them, like Kathy Shadle, because they're no longer with us. And I think of Kathy every day, and I miss her every day. I miss the things she said every day. But uh, more generally, people have just fallen away from the great, big, messy, decentralized internet of 20 years ago. And I'm very pleased that we're still here. At the time I started I remember a fellow who was uh, an editor of mine at the Spectator in London, who thought it was a bit sort of a bit demeaning me going on the internet and having a website and inviting people to send in letters and things. He thought it was all a bit demeaning. Uh, He didn't realise, I think, that that for a writer, and this is again to come back to your point, is that your personal brand matters now because. Very few news outlets, including the New York Times or The London Times or any other newspaper you care to mention, very few news outlets actually have the uh, the, the brand confidence that they had 20 years ago. And so from that point of view, uh, if you if you're serious about becoming a writer, you should try writing. I will say one other thing is like on the, I mentioned the cruise. On the cruise, we're, we're going to have uh, some of the younger talent. Uh, I've reached that stage where, you know, <laughs> I thought younger talent was uh, anybody under 58 and a half. And, uh, and it occurred to me then when I s- started doing the current iteration of the Mark Stein show that one of the things I wanted to do was actually to have uh, have young people, by which I mean people, you know, a fifth of my age, come on and, and uh, give their view of things. And that's, that's what we've done on The Mark Stein Show with Ava and uh, Alexandra and others on, on the show, Dominique uh, Samuels. And I think, I think there's the, the funny thing is there's always a market for that because I'm very mindful of something Martin Amos once said, Martin Amos the novelist, who was once very kind about my writing. It was very, very sweet of him, actually. And I appreciate that because I've mostly been <laughs> rather rude about him. But Martin had a line about, uh, you know, Kingsley, his father, Kingsley Amos, and Kingsley's attitude to Martin's success as a young man in his 20s. And he said, you know, you're, you're tootling along. And there comes a point when uh, somebody younger says, no, no, no. It's not like that. It's like this. And that's always a terrible time for a person when they realize they're getting up in years, as Kingsley Amis did vis-a-vis his son Martin in the 70s. And to be honest, it's not like that. I, I You know, I'm a bit like that uh, New Yorker thing uh, joke I quote from time to time about the theatre marquee that says, fun for young and old. And underneath it, coming out looking most unhappy is a middle-aged person. And I I often I often think when I, particularly when I watch or listen to some of the uh, so-called conservative voices in America, I often think that uh, they could use some freshening up. So one of the things I do like to do with the Mark Stein Show, I'm very pleased to have helped bring uh, Ava and Alexandra from the Netherlands and Australia to audiences they might not have uh, they might not have come to quite so quickly because I think they're good and I think they'll be with us for a long time. John Fetchy says Happy birthday to Stein online. The culture of your work may be about the only motivation I might ever have to board a cruise now that I've outgrown Lauren Tews. <laughs> Uh no no red blooded male outgrows Lauren Tews, John. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh for non-Americans, uh she 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 was one of the stars of the Love Boat, which um I always like if I'm if I'm in a motel room at four in the morning and it's on channel hundred and thirty seven, I always stick around just because I love uh, Jack Jones doing the theme song to The Love Boat. Anyway, uh, be that as it may, John continues, I viewed your six-year-old monk debate on YouTube this week. The issue's as fresh today as it was then, or should I say just as dirty, stinking and rotten as it was then. I literally can't articulate the willful blindness of your opponents in that debate. Please help me with your eloquence. When you crossed your fingers behind your head, in disgust, yes, I think there's a kind of glimpse of that where you can actually see me seething over Simon Sharma's remarks, because we bring up the sex attacks, you know, the sex attacks on young women uh, from these uh, so-called refugees. And he thinks it's a fine opportunity to make a joke about how Nigel and I can't get any action. And I'm sort of seething at that. Um. And uh, and you can—I'm I'm thinking about how I'm going to respond to that, and you'll know how I responded to that. And as the newspaper columnist said the following day, that turned the debate. Um, when you crossed your fingers behind your head in disgust, I felt your pain. I'm not as polite as you, and I could never have maintained the civility you showed that day well you don't need you don't need to get angry about it i mean i do get angry about it i i'm always struck by the heartlessness of the left now ju- just to be clear here when you open up your I'm, i made the point i think in that debate that when you look at trouble spots in the functioning parts of the world uh, the differences between uh, anglo canadians and franco quebecers are minimal in the scheme of things and yet uh, Madame Arbor's uh, fellow Quebecers, fellow Francophones, a majority of them voted to leave. That They didn't want to be in the same country as Anglo-Canadians in the 1995 referendum, 1996, whatever it was. And likewise, in Simon Sharma's country, the differences between um, Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics are absolutely minimal. Yet uh, that caused thousands of deaths over decades. You know, and if nothing else, that sh- I, I, uh, Anne McElhenney and I discussed this, the, 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 you would think, you know, a country that such as Ireland, for example, that has had uh, huge difficulties caused by the presence of people from a neighboring island would, would, wouldn't would be quite so blithe about saying, oh, yeah, the English, boy, that's impossible. But Somalis, that's going to work out just great. I mean, this is what they are doing is well, they are actually destroying. And most of them, I'll tell you the one thing that I didn't want to mock him because, you know, when you actually point out that someone's really just being a bit of a boob, it doesn't always work out great. Uh, if you're trying to turn the crowd. But I did think one of the most pathetic things that Simon Sharma, who was not, you know, he was personally very pleasant in in the in in, in the reception afterwards. Where we're all boozing it up. He was a very pleasant fellow. Um, but I thought one of the most ridiculous things he said was um, when he was talking about how his news agent was Muslim and he was a, absolutely a, a splendid chap. And that's the relationship they have to them. You know, that, that's the truth. That Simon Sharma, he, he buys The Guardian from the Muslim guy at the newsstand every morning and they exchange greetings and it's all very pleasant. But he has no idea. He has no idea about anything else. And they have made a situation, it, it's past the point of no return. In certain countries now, I think it's, and and even if we were to pull up the drawbridge gates tomorrow, it would require decades of a sustained assimilation effort that uh, the likes of Madame Arbour and Simon Sharma are not prepared to make. But we are made. We have made a hell of our countries, and those countries will t- most likely turn into something else entirely. I don't believe, for example, an America with 500 million people is gonna be any kind of America that the founding father, if you really wanna wave the constitution at me, I don't think an America that, you overstate, you overstate the idea of America as a philosophical abstraction. It's not, it's still rooted in the practical reality of its history. Uh, the founding fathers thought as they did because uh, they were British subjects, and as the uh, Continentals could have pointed out, that even though they, the the British subjects in the British Isles, didn't want to go as far as the Americans did, they were part of the same intellectual tradition. The idea that it's fully formed from the head of the the whole. Constitutional foundation is fully formed from the head of Zeus, and can then be applied to just random groups of people all over the planet, like the Sudanese or the Waziris or whatever. is completely stupid, and you can try it, as you are trying it, but it's not gonna it's not gonna end well, and it's a tragedy that because we've taken, we reached the peak of Western civilization after the Second World War. And then we set about destroying it, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing uh, to do. Uh, I, admit, I There was. Oh, Janice Cole says, "Hi, Mark. I see John Kerry is travelling commercial to COP 27. What do you think about St. Greta denouncing the entire event? What happened? Well, Greta and uh, John Kerry are, are just the sort of doing a good cop, bad cop routine." I mean, Greta, that's what Greta's for there, to say, oh, you're never, you know, John Kerry says, oh, we need to achieve net zero by a week on Tuesday. And and then Greta says, that's too late, asshole. And everyone applauds both of them because they're taking it seriously. I was actually quite shocked at the way Rishi Sunak said he wouldn't be attending COP27 because he wanted to get on preparing the mini budget because Britain's dying. People are going to start dying soon. And then, for whatever reason, he was forced to back down. And I find that odd because, obviously, as when Liz Truss backed down, it projects weakness. And yet, at the same time, apparently projecting weakness is something he just has to do because it's not possible to refuse to go along with this. You know, this is a global conspiracy against the people who aren't part of the governing class. That's what's so awful about it. Joe Patterson says, I haven't heard it discussed, but can't this influx of young military-age men coming across the channel be considered as nothing less than jihad by emigration? Yes, of course it is. Um, I think I talk about that in, um, I think it's in uh, America alone. uh, from A quote from, uh, I think it's Colonel Gaddafi. Who's, uh, who, who, who actually says we're going to conquer Europe demographically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 in America, in Britain, elsewhere, the left is advancing two contradictory propositions. First, they're saying, look, this COVID is serious. You have to be locked in. You can't get on a plane you can't go for a vacation you you we might have to if there's a new variant we might have to cancel thanksgiving and christmas but at the same time anyone can walk into our country they're not having to stay home they're not getting christmas and thanksgiving canceled they're not being arrested if they sit on a park bench for too long these things are contradictory So the only reason people would be advancing both of them is to go back to the Neil Oliver thing is because it's what they want. The sentimentalization of immigration is ridiculous and an obvious lie. Just to go back to that monk debate, you know, just to go back to all the girls being gang raped in English towns, just to go back to the lady... I met in uh, Östersund in uh, northern Sweden, who says she doesn't take her, her, they can't go, they all like the municipal bathing pools in northern Europe, in Scandinavia and Germany. It's a big thing. And it's not my bag particularly, but they like it. And uh, they, 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 they've had to give it up because the girls, the little girls were being molested by the so-called refugees. The, the lady singer I talked to, uh, who, German, who gave up going to Christmas markets because she thought that Christmas markets would be a target. And she was right. That very Christmas, they said, so now Christmas markets have to take place behind bollards. The diversity myth is just that it's a myth. It's a myth. They've wrecked almost every Western nation. And one of the things I really, really like. When people say to me, oh, you know, and I understand there's many listeners to this show not into Ukraine and all the rest of it. I'll tell you one of the things I liked about when I was wandering around Ukraine. Everybody there was Ukrainian. There was one lady from Moldova. Apart from me and the little group that were with me, uh, everybody there was a Ukrainian, uh, except for one lady from Moldova, just in the people I struck up a conversation with. So that when you walk around a Ukrainian town, it looks Ukrainian. Tell me about any city. Tell me, find me a Swedish town. You walk around in where the people still look Swedish. I'm just talking about small towns now. I'm not even talking about these ghastly modern multicultural capitals where everybody under 50 comes from somewhere else. And you have no idea where, whether that guy is a, uh, a, a svelte, tongan, or a uh, corpulent Somali. They just all come out the same. It's weird that that is what we... And it's just one way. You know, nobody in Tonga would like it if their cities looked like that. But it's somehow necessary for us to do that. And I just find it rather sad because at the end of it, because uh, uh, as I always say, when you lose your future... You also lose your pass. It's, it's a line I've been using since uh, that, that uh, rather nice theater in Vancouver closed down simply because Vancouver became such a Chinese city uh, and the Chinese had no interest in going and seeing Terence Rattigan and Noel Coward plays. So you lose. And again, you might think, oh, well, that's just artsy-fartsy stuff. Who cares about that? Well, it's interesting to me that in the Hispanic parts of the United States, you don't hear 80s rock. You don't hear guitar rock, because that's not such a Hispanic thing. You lose whole great chunks of your past. And if you have as glorious a past as uh, the British Isles do, that's, I th- as I said on TV the other night, I just think that's sad. It's desperately sad. It's desperately sad. Uh, let's, uh, let's see if we've got, uh, one. There's what what, we should do one more here before we, uh, check out. Uh, John Barrett says, uh, hi Mark regarding the puberty blocking and surgery now going on with minors. I hate to call it a fad. A few, a few years ago, this would have been criminal behavior in a broad sense. How did this happen? Well, I think when you look at it, To go back to what we were talking about with Laura Perrins the other night, the size of families, um, I think there are a lot more only children than there used to be. And if you go back 50 years, parents used to feel sorry for an only child. They used to think it was something they used to think that was something rather sad, that a child didn't have any siblings or whatever. Now it's become kind of a norm. Nobody even uses the phrase only child. Uh, a lot of the time we have the absence of men in these families too, in a lot of families, so that, uh, again, there's not male role models. And so if you're a boy and there's no male role models, it's easy to decide, well, maybe I'm a girl after all. And if you're a girl, likewise, it's easier to say, I'll be my own male role model. A lot of these things are to do with more general uh, social trends that they're sort of peripherally connected with. But centrally, I think it's that the uh, it's the idea that self-expression is all. That's how you define yourself, and that's what fills the void caused by the uh, collapse of respect for organized religion and the collapse in respect for other uh, age-old institutions in society, such as monarchy or whatever. Or if you're an American, the Constitution or whatever, and so. And, and, and so self-identification becomes the greatest, most authentic expression. Now, what's uh, terrible is that the doc, and this is why what happened in COVID shouldn't surprise us. Because we've seen when the American Association of Pediatricians, or whatever it's called— Uh, says that, well, uh, we should go along with uh, recognize the cultural significance of a clitoridectomy and provide just, you know, we don't have to go the whole way, but we should be willing to provide just a small nick, as they put it, to the lady parts to show that we're, you know, culturally sensitive and we're not looking to uh, pick a war over, pick a fight over all this. Now, that's just their design purely to deny a woman sexual pleasure, to emphasize that a woman's role is not to uh, derive sexual pleasure. Uh, but the fact that they are willing, to, they were willing to go along with that says something that they're not, you know, they're not really thinking right on a lot of these things. Now, in this case, we're actually prepared to mutilate children, we're prepared to make them infertile for what, as the NHS said just the other day, may just be a passing phase. It's wicked. And you think about this, you know, you're surprised. People have said to me, oh, I can't recall how many times people have said this during the COVID. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I quite see uh, what you mean about the ivermectin, but I'm just not allowed to. And I know what you saying about I've seen some bad things with these vaccines, but we're not allowed to mention it. Otherwise, I'll lose my job or whatever. They're just these are doctors and they're going with the flow. And why would they, why would you expect them to resist the COVID group think when they're prepared to mutilate children in pursuit of ideology? It's totally wicked that, totally wicked. Um, Nancy says, Mark, how can we get rid of this time change? It will be back to the usual five hour time change. Oh, here's a nice one. Rebecca Enkin. Um, Congratulations. Rebecca is a singer and and rebecca has uh, I, I think she's based in toronto and uh, and she's done some uh, very nice versions of the great standard songs and she picks interesting material and she does them in interesting ways and uh, it's it's and, and and i'm sure the last couple of years have been hell for her too because if you're you're someone who likes singing, you like to sing in front of crowds and you like to hear crowds who are into it and and you like to be able to ride off the crowd's enthusiasm and maybe phrase the out chorus a little bit differently from the way you did it a couple of months ago, whatever. Anyway, Rebecca's a terrific singer. She says, congratulations, on getting your cruise back up and sailing, Mark, as a fellow singer from Canada. Fellow singer from Canada. Yeah, I think it's uh, you, me, and uh, Gordon Lightfoot. That's it, isn't it? Uh, as a fellow singer from Canada. <laughs> you shouldn't be putting me in that category, Rebecca. I'd love to hear whether you'll be doing any crewing aboard for your Stein Online fads. Well, we always have some, uh, as you know, Tal Backman uh, it comes on our cruise, and I always inveigle him. I don't let him do any of that beastly rock and roll stuff. Um, but I uh, always inveigle him into doing uh, uh, Get Your Kicks on Route 66 or some other uh, standard song. And uh, I could I, I could usually be persuaded to do My Sharia or more or something, so there's always a little bit of. Uh, musical content on the cruises. Uh, love the show and enjoy your deep dive, says Rebecca, into all sorts of songs, especially those from the great American songbook. Well, you know, I love that. It gives me great pleasure. It's, it's a small part of our civilization. But again, you know, it's it's not a small thing when little small civilizational jewels are crushed and shattered. And the Taliban get that. That's why they ban music. Uh, ISIS get it. That's why they execute chamber orchestras on the beach. You know, uh, music is important. Music is important to life and music is important to free living freely. Thank you for that, uh, Rebecca. It's uh, that's and I hope things are better for you uh, because you've been more hellishly locked down in Ontario than I have. Uh, let's have a little more music before we close things out. <laughs> I'm not sure this is one that Rebecca's going to be singing anytime soon. Um, but Steve Martin's song isn't the only song called King Tut. A century ago, uh, the discovery of the tomb uh, prompted many a showbiz opportunist to figure that, uh, you know, there must be a hit in this Somewhere. Say, hey, mister? Yes?
1: Can you tell me where King Toot Toot and Comin's tomb is? <laughs> Why, tut tut tut, my boy. You mean King Tut on Common's tomb. Ah, that's the man. Do you know anything about him? Do I know anything about him? Well, just you listen to me. Three thousand years ago, in history we know, King Tutankhamen ruled a mighty land. He ruled for many years, mid the song and tears, he made a record that will always stand. Why, they opened up his tomb the other day and jumped with glee. They learned a lot of ancient history. The old king, tut, 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 on common day beneath the tropic skies. King Tut, tut, tut was very wise. Now old king, tut, 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 tut was tut, always gay. Cleopatra, she sat upon his knee. That's where she sat. The girls would dance for him, and every move a tree, They'd move and move and move, but never move their feet. A thousand girls would dance each day with lots of hip, 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 hooray. In old King Tut, 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 King Tutty's day. Of tears was full of souvenirs. He must have traveled greatly in his time. The gold and silverware that they found hidden there was from hotels of every land and clime. While going through his royal robe, they found up in his sleeve the first of letter Adam wrote to Eve. You, you know, old King, King, pat pat Cutting on common day, the dancers then in style Would even make the old sphinx smile in old King Tut Cutting. On Common's Day, on the desert sands, Old King Tutty's band played while maiden swayed They danced for Old King Tut, neat moonlit sky so warm. They wore such happy smiles and were in perfect form. They danced for him, both fat and thin. He didn't care a darn what shape they were in. In, in old, old King Tut, Tut 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 King Tutty's Day. In Old King Tut Tut. Tut That's Uncommon's Day, there was no Mr. Hines, with fifty-seven different kinds. In Old King, on Uncommon's Day. Peaches of that land, they were never canned, pears loved anywhere. Why, Sam, from Alabama, would not run one, two, three. Oh, what? A mark he'd be for old Mark Antony. Why, Valentino, as a sheep, he wouldn't last a half a week. You
0: know. In old King tut 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 tut, 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 tut 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 King Tutty's Day. In old King Tut-Tut-Tutty-Tut, King Tutty's Day. Billy Jones. He's our Love Her by Radio Man on the 100 Years Ago show. Billy Jones and Ernest Hare in a hit song from 1923 by Harry von Tilzer and William Jerome. A big... Tin Pan Alley veterans. William Jerome is the lyricist of Chinatown, My Chinatown. And then he'd row, row, row way up the river. He would drop both his oars, take a few more encores, and then he'd row, row, row. And if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews, that's one of William Jerome's too. And Harry von Tilzer is the composer of She's Only a Bird in a Gilded Cage. Wait till... Till the sun shines, Nellie. And uh, I want a girl, I want a (laughs) girl. I've started way too high. I can't, uh, that's going to kill me. Uh, I want a girl just like the girl that married dear old dad. Uh, And uh, way back, way back in 1898, Harry Von Tills wrote the music for my old New Hampshire home. Uh, a song I sang on our Christmas show a few years back in a medley with my neighbour from across the Connecticut River, Elizabeth Von Trapp, doing Moonlight in Vermont. Stick with Stein online this weekend for the 100 Years Ago show, Rick McGuinness' movie pick, Stein's Song of the Week, more from our 20th anniversary stroll through the archives, and a special edition of the Mark Stein Show, all coming up. Stay safe, stay free.
1: Clubland Q&A is a production of Markstein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media.